Good morning. My name is Danae Glass. Would you stand for the scripture reading? Today's reading is from Romans 9, 1 through 8. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Let's just remain in this moment and welcome God's work into our lives and into our hearts. If, uh, if it's not too mystical to you, I just invite you to take a deep breath. Glorious Sunday morning in Manitou Springs. God is good. We have been given the privilege of living another day. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow because you don't know about tomorrow's evil. All you know about is what is in front of you today. And so, Jesus, we just rise up into you today in the simplicity of our hearts. We're hungry for you, even if we don't know it. We need you, even if we don't know it. <laughs> we just, we need you. So would you come? Would you come? We open the scriptures and we're still rubbing the sleep out of our eyes and it throws these big ideas at us about this drama of salvation that we're caught up in. Would you help us as we open the scriptures see how our lives are dignified by being part of your grand story? Would you do that, Lord? Come, we need you. We don't want our lives to be a waste. We don't want them to just drift about on the ocean of our own desires or the mood of our times, but we would like these lives, the one life that you've given us, we would like that life to be anchored deeply in your purposes. And we'd like to shine with all that you are and all that you have, so come. We're asking that as we open the scriptures this morning that they would sing to us. We're asking, Lord, I'm asking that the words of the preacher here would just serve to crack open the scripture a little wider so that this beautiful life that's being nurtured here in Manitou Springs can be enhanced, that it would be blessed. May bless you, Lord. So come. We're asking, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you be seated? It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Andrew, and uh, I'm one of the newer staffers kind of a lot around the New Life world. I was a pastor in Denver for a while, 
along with my wife, Mandy, sitting on the front row with me. Uh, we have four kids. Three of them are with us this morning. Uh, Ethan, Gabe, Isabella, and Liam, who you're going to hear a little bit more about in the message. But I'm just so excited to be here. I was, uh, I was running this morning. We live over on the east side of town. I know everybody over here says west is best, but, uh, but east is pretty good, too. We live in Wolf Ranch, and I got this running path that uh, is sort of one of my favorite jogging spots in the morning. And as I was coming around the corner, I could kind of see, um, I can see really a huge chunk of Colorado Springs from there. And I can see the red rocks with uh, Manitou Springs tucked back there. And I just marveled this morning as I was running, thinking about the miracle of being part of God's people. Um, one great theologian of the church said that the church is the kingdom in embryo that it's like this, it's the kingdom of God planted among the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdoms of this world don't get it. They don't see it, they don't realize what we're nurturing. But I looked out towards Manitou Springs and I went, God, what a miracle it is that you're nurturing kingdom life here in this building, an old Masonic lodge or whatever it is, among a group of people that are hungry for you. And so God, this morning, Sunday morning, would you just help us step into that and would you let your kingdom rise in our midst a little bit more? So I'm just, I'm so grateful to be here. Uh, we're in the book of Romans. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter nine. And um, I just wanna set this up. Uh, I think that there's a, there's a word here. Um, about the heart of God and then what it means um, to be the church who's been touched by the heart of God. There's something profound here for us. Romans chapter 9, just to set it up, uh, Paul has come off of this fabulous crescendo. How many of you, um, Romans chapter 8 uh, is like one of your favorite sections of the Bible? A bunch of you? Uh, Romans, I mean, there are like, there are moments in the scripture where it just explodes with poetic power. And Romans chapter eight is one of those spots, Paul saying, uh, no, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all, Creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Like the energy of Romans has been building towards this dramatic crescendo. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if Paul had a handheld mic at that point, he would have been well justified <laughs> in dropping it. But he doesn't. He's got these, he's got like this agenda that he still has to deal with questions that he still has to answer. And one of the big questions that is still on the table in the book of Romans is, if the Jewish people are those through whom God has accomplished his purposes in the world to bring the Messiah, well then what is God doing with the Jewish people? Are they, do they still have an ongoing role in his purposes? And what is the role of the church vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish people. And so the next several chapters, 9, 10, and 11, will be a sustained and very complicated answer to that question. Fortunately, Pastor Joe is gonna, he's gonna ha handle that sustained and very complicated. I I'm gonna get you started by giving you a glimpse into the heart of God, which I think will set the trajectory for the next couple chapters. So I want you to listen to these words that Danae read from just a moment ago. I want you to listen to them again, and don't listen to them so much with your mind, but listen to them with your heart with your soul. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. 
but conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow. Everybody say great sorrow. Great sorrow. And unceasing anguish. Say unceasing anguish. Unceasing. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law. Theirs is the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Uh, Amen. He's like, my people, the Jewish people, have been given so much. It all came through them because it all came to them first. They were the ones in whom the life of God was originally nurtured in in the world. And the Messiah even came through them. And so he says, so this is his way of setting it up. So God, what what are you doing, Lord? And he says, but it's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor, because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And so he says that even though this life has been nurtured among the Jewish people, they're now, like in Jesus Christ, as one great theologian put it, um, in Jesus Christ, the covenant has like exploded. And the doors to the kingdom of God have been flung wide open. And now there is this new Jew plus Gentile family that is bearing witness to God's purposes to all humanity in the world. The question that I want to ask for you this morning is what does it mean? We can put the first slide up on the screen. What does it mean to be the elect covenant family of God? And the answer that I want to propose to you this morning is that to be the elect covenant family of God is always to be so, I want you to have this seared in your mind, is always to be so, not just for our own sakes, but for the sake of those who are not yet part of the elect covenant family of God. A simpler way of saying that is to be the church, to be the church is always to be the church for others. The Jewish people of the Old Testament did not always understand this in the way that they needed to. You'll remember that when the promise first comes to Abraham, the great father of the faith, uh, the scripture says that God says to him that I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all of the, do you remember it? Somebody say it. All of what? All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So already at the very outset in the biblical story, The covenant family are understood to be a group of people that are gathered together for the sake of those that are beyond the covenant family. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So there is this. It's built into the promise from the very start. And yet the thing that you notice as the Old Testament story unfolds is that Israel didn't do a great job of holding that concept in their minds. Most of the time, their understanding of being the elect covenant family of God is they just went, well, we're a people of privilege. So God loves us, and he's blessed us, and so God, um, continue to pour your grace out upon us and help us grow in the land. And of course, there's these, ah, the pagans out there, blah, right? Lord, they're oppressing us in some way, or they're tempting us to evil and idolatry, or dear God, they're occupying our land. Get them out of our land, Lord. And 
When even when you see the psalmist wrestling with the reality of the pagans, the Gentiles, those beyond the covenant family, most of the time they're just kind of annoyed with them. Get them out of here, Lord. Smite my enemies. What is the matter with all of those gross people? Won't it be great when the Jewish people are the only people in the whole world? That's kind of the sentiment that you get. And yet, as you read the story, the thing that you begin to realize is that the lub-dub of God's heart for Israel is also the lub-dub of God's heart for everybody beyond Israel. Israel just didn't always realize it. One of the great places that this comes out in the scripture is the Old Testament book of Jonah. Remember the story? Jonah is before God one day and he begins to hear the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Jonah, I need you to get up. Yes, Lord. And I need you to get ready to preach. Okay, God. And I want you to go to the great city of, wait, what's that, Lord? Nineveh? What? What? Say that again, Lord. I'll start at the top. You want me to preach? I'm going to go and show up to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh? For some historical context, the Ninevites, Nineveh is a city in Assyria. The Assyrians, the Assyrians were one of the great oppressors of Israel in Israel's history. There was always conflict between the two. A little bit like the United States and Russia in like the 80s. Okay. I want you to go to Moscow and preach. And Jonah visceral revulsion to the idea of going to Nineveh. So what does he do? You remember the story? He runs the other direction. Is that not Nineveh? Yeah, not doing that. Goes off in the other direction, heads over to Joppa, jumps on a boat, starts sailing away, and God is just hot on his trail. And so the you know, the boat is on the verge of being capsized and the, the sailors on the boat, they do some little magical incantations and divinizations and they realize that Jonah is the reason that the boat is about to sink. So they go, what did you do, man? He goes, well, I'm kind of running from God. And he goes, well, but what you could do is you could throw me overboard into the sea and then the sea will grow calm. Now, by the way, this is not an especially pious thing for Jonah to do. It kind of comes off that way. Like Jonah's so self-sacrificing. but It's really his way of entrenching his disobedience in his story. He goes, oh yeah, if you kill me, then I really won't have to go to Nineveh. But they're like, that's fine, we're gonna live. So they throw Jonah overboard and the whale comes or the fish comes, right, and eats Jonah. And Jonah from the belly of the whale all of a sudden becomes very pious. Lord, Lord, my life was ebbing away. It was drawing near the gates of death, but I know, Lord, that you're going to deliver me. And so the fish vomits Jonah up on dry. And Jonah must, at this point, Jonah must have this idea that God's gonna get off his back and leave him alone. And then the story recapitulates, though. The word of the Lord comes to him a second time. Uh, Jonah, you dried off now? You good? We good? Okay. Nineveh, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach because its wickedness has come up before me, and Nineveh has 40 days before it's overturned unless it repents. And so Jonah goes, all right, fine, whatever, God. And so he starts journeying to Nineveh. The scripture says that Nineveh was this huge city in the ancient world. It required a three-day journey just to get through it. And so Jonah starts kind of trudging into Nineveh, you know, begrudgingly. I don't really want to do this, God. And so he starts kind of doing his thing. All right, guys, 40 more days and this city will be overturned. And Jonah's got to be thinking, these people are such idiots. There's no way they're going to respond. So he just kind of does it. 40 more days. 
and the city will be overturned. And do you know the darndest thing happens? His preaching of the need for repentance catches like wildfire in Nineveh. And all of a sudden, everybody goes, wait, what? 40 more days and the city will be overturned. God, we need to repent? Well, okay, we'll do that. And there is like Jonah, the reluctant prophet, sparks this broad-scale revival in Nineveh. So much so, the king of Nineveh gets up, he hears about it, and he tears his royal robes. <sighs> we have to repent! He proclaims a fast. Everybody fasts in Nineveh, including the animals. <laughs> it's this huge thing. Jonah has provoked a revival of repentance in this ancient city. And do you know what his response was? He was he was mad. He goes, God, I hate those dumb people. That's my translation of the Hebrew. I hate those dumb people. And I knew this was going to happen, God. That's why I ran away from you the first time. I knew that you're gracious and forgiving, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, and that if these people repent, you'd forgive them. And then my animosity towards them has no more justification. And I like my animosity towards them, and I do think I'm special. Right? That's like Jonah's thing. And the Lord says to him, do you have any right to be angry? Like, don't you understand that I love them in the same way that I love you? He says, there are more than 120,000 people in that city who cannot tell their left hand from their right hand. And there's children and there's animals too. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And by implication, should not you be concerned about that great city? Guys, to be part of the elect covenant family of God is to come in contact with God's heart for the world. And God's heart for the world beats deep in his chest. How many of you are parents in this room? Yeah, a bunch of you. Remember when you held your babies for the first time? Remember that? I got four of them, like I said. My oldest son, Ethan, uh, man, I remember when he was born, uh, holding that baby for the first time. I did not know that my heart was capable of that kind of love instantaneously for a complete stranger. Ethan had been a bump on my wife's body for nine months, and now he's here. And I remember, I remember that feeling of like, oh, I'll do anything for this child. I, it doesn't, I will lay down on the train tracks. I will take a bullet for this child. And I remember Mandy, you know, we, uh, it had been a long labor and delivery. And so I'm holding Ethan and it's late on a Tuesday night after Ethan was born. He's a couple hours old. Mandy falls asleep and I'm holding Ethan for the first time. And I remember this is just me being a gooby dad. You know, I started telling him some family history and <laughs> catching him up on who we were and what our family culture is like and how much he's going to love it. And I started, I started telling him about how much God loves him. You know, this is the preacher coming out and and, uh, and I just, as I'm talking to him like this, I remember I just started weeping over Ethan. And it was so unusual. You know, I have my love for my friends and I have my love for my extended family and there's romantic love, but the love of a parent for a child is something, it's just a whole other category of love. And when you feel it for the first time, it cracks open something in you. And you carry like this. It's almost, even though they're, nothing bad has happened. It's almost like a wound in you or something. It's like, oh, and I remember my longing for Ethan was an absolute longing for his good, whatever it cost me. And so we brought Ethan home from the hospital. A couple months after that, we realized that we were 
pregnant with our second kid, Gabe. So Gabe and Ethan are, Gabe is 11 and Ethan's 10. They're very close together. That's all, all their story. And, um, <laughs> and I remember, uh, I remember being very concerned when we got pregnant with Gabe because I loved Ethan so much. And in my mind, that feeling that I had for him, for Ethan, was an absolute value that I had for any possible child that might make its way into our house, right? This is the total quantity of the dad love that I do have. And so now that Gabe, this other baby, is coming into our lives, we don't know at the time, but this other baby is coming into our lives, I remember thinking to myself, okay, I have this much love right now, and it's, 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 it's a great and powerful love, and so it's like a pie of love, actually. And now that Gabe is coming into our lives, or this other baby is coming into our lives, I'm going to have to take the pie and cut the pie up and give half of the pie to this other baby, and then Ethan will have half the pie. And a half a pie is still pretty good. It's not as good as a whole pie, but it just is. And then I started thinking, I just, this was the way that my mind worked. I started thinking, but then if we have any more kids, then I'm going to have to divide the pie up further. And so we have a third kid, and you get a third of a pie, and then a fourth kid, and everybody's got a fourth of the total love that I have. And God forbid we should become that family on TLC that has like 23 children, because then our kids will just get scraps of love. It's just not a good situation for anybody. And so I had that. It was a really deep concern I had in my heart. And so six months or so later, Gabe is born, and I hold Gabe in my arms for the first time. And all of a sudden, it happened to me again my heart like cracked open again, or maybe an even better way of saying it is that I got a new heart specifically for Gabe. And the heart that I had for Ethan was this like, I realized it was its own thing. And what Gabe has with me and what I have with Gabe, it's, it's totally different. And then Bella, our daughter, a couple years later was born. And the same thing, God like gave me a, a new heart for her. And when Bella was born, I remember it was that same kind of feeling I had, you know, my Ethan and Gabe to me, my little bebops, man, I loved those boys. They were three, almost three and almost two when Bella was born. And I had such an ache in my heart, the dad ache in my heart for them. And my big ache was like, Lord, okay, now that a third is coming, you know, everybody says uh, you go when you have the second kid, um, you switch to like a, you have man-to-man defense, right? And then when you go from two to three, it's, you switch to zone defense, right? Is what they say. And so I'm like, with Bella coming into our lives, God, how am I going to give these boys everything that they need? And that was a real hurt that I had in my heart. And so Bella was born, it was a wonderful experience. And Mandy is in the hospital with Bella, and I grabbed the boys. We had a babysitter, had been taking care of them. And I grabbed the boys, and I went home with them. And I started going through the evening ritual. I fed them dinner, and I bathed them. And as I'm going through the ritual, I'm thinking about all the changes that are coming into our lives. And so I dry them off, and I get them in their jammies, and then I take them into their room, and I do the nighttime ritual. And I sing their favorite songs, and I rock them, and I pray over them. And I pray, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as I'm praying this over the boys, I can feel this powerful emotion welling up in my soul. And I don't want to fall apart weeping in front of my two little kids because it would be confusing for them. And so I put them to sleep and I close the door, shut the light off and I close the door and I go out into the hallway and I fall on the ground and I'm just sobbing, going, Lord, I need you to be for these boys everything that I cannot be for them because my energies are going to be divided. 
would you help us do right by them in every situation? And please, dear God, take care of my boys. A few days later, Mandy's home from the hospital. The dust is settling a little bit, and I grab some time to myself, and I sent my parents a little email update on how we were doing and what was going on and all that. And so I kind of gave them the update, and then I told them, I thought, oh, this will be nice. I'll give them that little vignette, that little story of my ache for my boys. And so I write it out, and my mom responds back right away um, in my typical you know, mom fashion. She goes, oh, Andrew, wonderful, thank you. I'm glad that everybody's doing great and great, wonderful story. Thank you so much, you know. My dad writes back a day after that. And as long as I live, I will never forget this. This was his email back to me. Andrew, now you know, Dad. You have those moments in your life where your whole world tilts, and you see things in a way that you had never seen them before. You know how when you're a kid, you just think that your parents are crazy, that they're just crazy people. And then you go, you have that moment where it shifts, and you go, oh, the moment that I had with Ethan and with Gabe and with Bella, my parents had a moment like that with me. My dad had a moment like that with me, and it drove his love for me and his behavior towards me. And his dad had a moment like that with him, and his dad had a moment like that with him, and his dad, and his dad, and his dad, and his dad, and his dad. And all of a sudden, you start realizing that that powerful, explosive feeling of absolute commitment, that that goes all the way up and all the way out. That is the way that God feels towards every single human being. He feels at least that way. One of the things that we teach in Christian theology, one of the things that we believe in Christian faith is that God is infinite. And you know what that means? It does not just mean that God has like a very big bucket of love that he kind of spills on people at random. Well, there's a lot more where that came from, right? But what it means, God's infinitude, means that he can take and does take the whole of who he is all the time for every single human being that has ever been born is born now or will ever be born, and he can tilt the whole of who he is towards all of those people all the time without being divided at all. Which means that the whole heart of God is oriented towards every human person all the time. There has never been a moment in your life or in the lives of any of those people out there in the rest of Manitou Springs or Colorado Springs that God is not throbbing with love for, that he's not obsessing over that he's not planning for, that he doesn't, that his heart doesn't tear for. One of my favorite psalms in the Old Testament is Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge as this is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where could I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day because darkness is as light to you for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, the psalmist says. I know that full well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. Every day ordained for me were written in your books before one of them came to be. How precious concerning me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. There has never been a human being that that psalm was not true about. The heart of God throbs for every single person. Remember the stories that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15? The parables of lostness. He says, how many of you, if you had a hundred sheep, and you lost one of them, how many of you wouldn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until you found it? And when you found it, wouldn't you put it on your shoulders and bring it home and throw a party, saying to your friends, look, I got my lost sheep back. You ever read that parable? You know, sometimes we get so used to things that we say in the church that the absurdity of them does not strike us. We read that parable. You know what that's intended to do to us? It's intended to make us go, are you out of your flipping mind, Jesus? How many of you got 100 sheep and you lost one of them and leave the 99 in the... Oh, that sounds like an incredibly good strategy for losing 99 sheep. <laughs> cut bait with that sucker, man. Let him go, cut your losses, keep the 99. But God is not like us. He's far better than us. We would cut our losses. God doesn't cut his losses. He goes on. How many of you, if you had 10 silver coins and you lost one of them, wouldn't you tear your house to pieces and search night and day until you found the lost coin and when you found it, wouldn't you call all of your friends and throw a party? You go, no, you're nuts. Are you deranged? Have you become unglued? That's an excellent strategy for incurring a bunch of costs by which you will lose the other nine coins, even if you gain the one, which is highly unlikely. No, no, I won't be doing that. But God is not like us. He's far better than us. His commitment to us is absolute. He searches for the lost sheep until he finds it. He searches for the lost coin until he finds it. He searches for the lost son until the son comes home. I have this on my desk. This little picture, it's coming up in a second, I'm pretty confident. Is it coming up? There it is. Little wooden cross, and that picture that's sitting at the front of it is a little placard of Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son. And you can see on the left side of the picture, the father is pictured as an old man who's been waiting all of his life for his son to come home, and his son is haggard, everything falling apart missing a shoe, his head is shaved, he's dressed in rags, and the father is so glad to have him home. 
And I have that on my desk because it reminds me that the mystery that is at the center of all things is the mystery of the cross-shaped love that's trying to bring every human being home. And I think to myself when I sit at that desk and pray and when I write sermons and I write other things and I do work and I answer emails, I think this is what is happening. This is what is happening. This is what is happening. Beneath and beyond all of the vicissitudes of history, the ebb and flow of time, this is what is happening. This is what is happening. Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against him, uh, against them. And I think to myself, this is the energy of your heart, God. The energy of your heart is to find your lost sheep, your lost coin, your lost sons and daughters and bring them home. And would you please help me live at the very edge of that energy, God? That's where I want to be. I want to live at the edge of your lub-dub. I want to live at the edge of your throbbing heart. And would you help awaken in me a deep desire that everything that I do and everything that I'm a part of somehow contributes to that. This, guys, is the mystery that is at the heart of all things. And the church's call is to live at the edge of God's heart for other people. We have this, uh, one of my newest friends in our Friday night congregation. Most of the teaching that I do is with our Friday night congregation up at uh, New Life North. And one of my newest friends is this little girl, Heidi Edwards. She's six years old. She's just the sweetest thing you have ever seen. When you look in her eyes and you talk to her, light erupts from her face. And on Sunday, a little Heidi came up to me and she had a picture that she had drawn for me. She comes up to me and I was down at the front in front of the altar. And she goes, she goes, Pastor Andrew, you got the cutest voice. This is for you. I go, and it was a picture of a guy and a little girl and some sky overhead. And I had a pretty good idea of what the picture was, but I thought I'd ask her anyway. I go, Heidi, who are the people in this picture? I go, who is this person on the left here? I'm pointing to the man. She goes, that's Pastor Andrew. I go, Heidi. <laughs> you can feel the gooiness. I go, Heidi, that is so wonderful. And it's so accurate, too. It's a wonderful picture. I go, and who is this person over here? And she looks at me like I'm stupid, you know. She goes, that's me. I go, Heidi, this is the most wonderful thing. Thank you. for. So I took it back to my office, and I taped it on my wall to remember that I have a friend in little Heidi. Little Heidi Edwards and her four siblings were rescued by DHS from a home here in Colorado Springs where their parents were drug addicts, four kids sleeping on a single mattress, one blanket, surrounded by, there were animals all over the house, iguanas, there was a big turtle in the house, dogs and cats, so there, was, there was animal feces everywhere, broken glass on the floors, they were starving to death, these kids, and covered in filth. And their parents, who already had two kids adopted, Earl and Danielle Edwards, adopted these four kids and brought them into their lives. When they pulled up to the house that Earl and Danielle live in for the first time, they have a three-car garage, and one of the garage doors went open, and little Heidi, she was four at the time, she goes, which one of these is yours? And Danielle goes, they're all ours, and they're all yours now. And they brought these kids into their house. And when she, the very first day, they were taking off, Heidi has a little brother whose name is Dash. And they were taking off Dash's shoes. And Heidi goes, no, 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 no. You can't take off his shoes. And Danielle said, why? She goes, because of the glass all over the floors. 
She goes, Heidi, there's no glass on the floor here. Later they found out that the kids, at one point, the kids said, you know, in our old house, we were allowed to eat all the dog food we wanted. It's so little normal food that the parents said to them, well, if you're still hungry, you can go over the dog foods over there. You can eat dog food. Guys, you don't have to eat dog food anymore. Welcome to the kingdom of God. That's kind of what it's like. The church's call is to live at the edge of God's heart for others. Where does that impulse in the heart of Earl and Danielle Edwards come from? It comes from the heart of God. The heart of God who's willing to bleed for the sake of others to see them brought home. Listen to Paul's words again in Romans 9, the beginning of the chapter. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. So here is the whole thing for Paul, that Paul got close enough to Jesus, who is the very incarnation of the Father's love. Paul got close enough to Jesus, Jesus who was cut off to see us come home, that Paul goes, that heart has somehow gotten in me. And so now I'm like right on the edge of it for my people, the Jewish people, because I so desire to see them come awake to the Father's love that if I could be cut off and it guaranteed that they came into the kingdom of God, that's what I'd do. I'd sign up for that in a second. I could wish that for myself. That is what happens, guys, when we get close to Jesus. That something of his bleeding heart is born in us. That willingness of Jesus to bear the cost for the sake of other people, to see them come into the kingdom of God, to see their lives restored, that's what happens to us. One of the great theologians of the church says that, that the church is the place where Jesus Christ is actual on planet earth. That means that the mystery of incarnation and ongoing redemption is taking place through the church of Jesus Christ in Manitou Springs in this little weird Masonic lodge. It's happening, guys. It's happening. As we come awake to the Father's love, as we come awake to his heart for others, as we come awake to the way in which he searches night and day after the lost sheep, something changes in us. We go, Lord, I'll write that check. Lord, I'll volunteer my Saturday. Lord, I'll spend time sitting by the bedside of a person dying. Lord, I will go to the home of the neighbors whose marriage is falling apart. Whatever it takes, I will inconvenience myself because that's what my life is for when you're part of the people of God. It is for that and for no other. One of the great documents of the church written by the Catholic Church in the 20th century uh, was a pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world and the opening lines of it went like this. I thought these were some of the most beautiful words that I'd ever heard. It said that the joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the men of this age and especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. Indeed, nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in their hearts. The church is not some secret society closed off from the realities of the world. The world's brokenness, that touches us. The pain of the world touches us. The way in which the world is fragmented and shattered by sin, that touches us. That's part of our responsibility. 
we don't have the luxury. We do not have the luxury of going, la, 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 la. Oh, wars and dictators and famines and plagues. La, 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 la. Oh, people are sick and suffering and dying and hurting and they're far from God. La, 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 la. I have soccer games this Saturday afternoon, Lord. I can't busy myself with that. We don't have the luxury of that. We are God's people, blessed and broken and given to the world. And if you ask me, there are two main things, the church and the Western world in the 21st century that kill this in us. One of them is selfishness. That we just think that our lives belong to us. And that salvation was just this wonderful sort of present that God gave to us on Christmas Day or whenever it was, you know. And so now we have this thing, and now you're going to ask something of me, God? No, I don't, I don't think so. And I'll just return it. I didn't know that there were strings attached. <laughs> God grafts you into his life for the sake of using you for the, for the world. And so selfishness is, is a huge killer. But do you know what I think the other huge killer of entering into the compassion of God for the world is? This thing. Well, now we've done and preached, haven't we? <laughs> Man, this thing, these things, man, they are destroying our lives. And for some weird reason, we have to live with them. It's hard not to. But the way in which they breed distraction in our souls, I think, is cutting the root of compassion. And here it is, right? So here, Facebook. Open the app. Start scrolling through. Oh, my gosh. 150 people died in a mudslide in India. That is so sad. Oh my goodness. Brownies. There's something, it's like it's warping something in us. The long, deep human emotions that we should feel, that should lead us into creative solidarity with the world to see it healed, it's being destroyed in us. We can't ever get there because we're doing this. And we just bop from thing to thing to thing to thing. And the heart of God never deeply reaches us. I'm challenging you to overcome your selfishness and overcome your distraction and begin to feel what is going on in the world. Because if you do, it will lead you into the kind of creative spiritual practices that bring healing to the world. And the big brouhaha, the fracas erupted in Charlottesville a couple months ago. My wife and I had gone to bed. It was a Saturday night. We didn't know anything about what was happening there, and I couldn't sleep that night, so I got up at about 10 or 11, and I came downstairs, and I opened my little Twitter app, and I started scrolling through, and I see that there's this thing happening in Charlottesville, and so I turn on CNN, and I go, and I'm watching CNN, and I've every just the moment of candor, every temptation of the soul was to go, crazy, stupid people, Ugh, right, which is what I did. Turned the TV off, went back to bed, and I could not sleep that night. Several hours later, it was two or three in the morning, I woke up, and I just felt like the Lord was going, what are you doing, Andrew? This thing is happening in your world. Where are you going to be in that? So I got up. It must have been three in the morning. I got up, and I brewed a pot of coffee, and I made a cup for myself, and I went down into our little spare bedroom. It's this little kind of prayer den that I have, and I lit a candle, and I sat there, and I just went, Lord, this has to touch me. And I sat there, and I started thinking about the tenderness that God wants in relationship between human beings and the massive fracturing of tenderness that that represented. 
I started thinking about the glory of the kingdom of God that is coming and how in the kingdom there will be peace and the lion will lay down with the lamb and the little child will put his hand in the viper's nest and he won't be afraid. And I started thinking about how the world we live in does not embody that. And as I sat there and I let that, uh, the reality of that fracturing work down deep into me, it led to intercession. It led to prayer. It led to tears. It led to spiritual warfare. It led to going, God, that has to stop and not on my watch and not in this world. And would you let your church arise and be a beacon of hope? God, do it again. Do it now. Do it in our time. But we'll never get there if we live in selfishness and distraction. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 17, he says, now we are children if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Do you know what it means to participate in the sufferings of Christ? It's not like, gee, God, I had a bad week this week. I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ. My car broke down, the sufferings of Jesus. I'm bearing my cross. That's not it. Every time in the New Testament, the New Testament talks about bearing with the sufferings of Christ or bearing our cross. You know what it's about? It's about being willing to bear the cost of the redemption of the world with God. It's about the sacrifice of our time and our attention and our energy to see wayward and lost sons and daughters come home, to see the world that is fractured and broken reconciled to the love of the Father. That's what it's about. So my question for you this morning, and with this will close, is are you letting the pain of God's heart for the world touch you? And are you letting that lead you into all the places that God wants you to go? Because it's specifically through that that he brings the world into his kingdom. Let's stand and pray. Oh, Lord, we need you. We need you. We need you. And we just lift our hearts up to you here and now, God. We lift our hearts up to you here and now. We believe that you are the God who works miracles. We believe that you're the God that brings redemption. We, are, we believe that you're the God that wants to see the healing of the nations. We are your new covenant family. The elect, the called, the chosen in Christ Jesus called for the sake of the world. So we're asking that wherever there is fear and selfishness and distraction in us that keep us far from your purposes, we ask that you would just explode those in us and that our hearts would begin to ache. Lord, we're asking that all the people that we're surrounded by in our worlds and our jobs and neighborhoods and in our families that don't know you, whose lives are a mess because of sin, we ask that that would hurt us, that that would hurt us and that that would awaken prayer and intercession and creative action and I pray that in that, Lord, you would, uh, that you just bring healing to people. So come. We need you. Explode our hearts for your kingdom and glory, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.